Hallå och välkommen till A Flatpack History of Sweden, podcasten som går igenom svensk historia från när de första människor flyttade hit upp till nutiden. Jag heter Chris. And I'm Elsa, and that was Chris giving the introduction in Swedish. So <laughs> I didn't say I was going to do that. <laughs> very good. But for the benefit of all our non-Swedish speaking listeners, I'm just going to repeat what he said. He said, hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you through Swedish history from when the first humans arrived here up to the modern day. I am Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yes, um, you continue now because that threw you off That did throw me off a bit. I wasn't expecting to hear you speak Swedish. Today we're going to return to our more chronological narrative and talk about what the state, the monarchy and the rule of Sweden will look like now that the great statesman Bia Jarl is dead. Uh, we covered the life and rule of Bia Jarl across three episodes, episodes 38, 39 and 40, before we took a little break to do a special episode on the Chernobyl disaster. And since then, we have also talked about the history of the island of Gotland and the early history of Finland and how it came to be joined with Sweden. So if you haven't listened to the episodes about Bioyal, we recommend you do so to learn about the events that led up to where we are now. And now, in our chronological story, It is the year 1266, the year Bioyal died. So that's where we'll pick up today. But first, what's our Swedish phrase of the week? So this week's phrase has been suggested by one of our wonderful and dedicated listeners, Magnus Andersson, who sent in a bunch of great phrases to us uh, now, probably a couple of months ago. Um, at least the latest one was only a few weeks ago. And so thank you very much, Magnus. We're going to be covering a lot of those phrases as we go through the next few weeks because we were running out of some fun ideas. So they came at just the right time. And this week we started with Deliger and Hund begraven, which literally means there's a dog buried or a dog is buried but it's not really supposed to be taken literally unless you're actually stating a fact that you've just found a buried dog which you might do if you're an archaeologist I suppose or some sort of crime investigator. True pet detective maybe uh, <laughs> but no there's a figurative meaning of this phrase as well and it means that Something's not right, or someone's trying to hide something. Uh, you could, for example, say, I don't think my friend was telling the truth when she told me she had no money. De ligger en hund begraven. There's a dog buried in her story. It's actually very similar in its use and meaning to the English phrase to smell a rat. Uh, but instead of smelling rodents, in Swedish we find buried canines. And I think we've actually done a similar Swedish phrase quite a long way back because I remember you saying smell a rat. It's a phrase you like. <laughs> I, yeah, I think we did. I think we covered the phrase ana uglor i mossen. Imagine there's owls in the bog, yeah. which means the same thing to, to suspect that something's wrong. So both phrases, um, I suppose, are a bit similar to the English or perhaps more American phrase, to smell a rat. 
And they're both involving animals, I suppose, so that's fun. But it's now time to get back to the timeline and return to 1266. The Jarl, the powerful Jarl, and the man who in effect ruled Sweden in the mid-1200s is now dead. And there kind of isn't really a succession as such, because remember, his son Valdemar is already king. There is no new person becoming king, it's just the man falling down from behind the throne. Whilst Boyar might have ruled, he never officially reigned. The crown always belonged to his son, who was the nephew on his mother's side to the previous king, Eric. Boyar hasn't tried to call himself king. Valdemar has been king since 1250, when he was only around 11 years old, though. So that was when Boyar Jarl, who was already Jarl under King Eric, did some careful political manoeuvring to ensure that his son ended up on the throne. And also that meant that power was secured not just for himself, but also for his family. We covered this in more detail in the first episode on Bia Yal, which was episode 38, called Bia Yal Begins. So if you like a bit of reminder about how all that happened, how Valdemar ended up on the throne, just go back and listen to that episode. So Valdemar is of royal descent, albeit on his mother's side, like we said. But he's also a member of the Bielbu family on his father's side. Birger Jarl himself was the grandson of Birger Brusa, an influential Jarl back in the 1200s, who served under Knut I and Sverka the Younger. The Bielbu family itself has held several important and prestigious roles in Swedish society, and with the help of some clever marriage alliances, also married into both the Swedish, Danish and Norwegian royal families. In Sweden, they've circled around the throne for three generations, and now, with Valdemar, the family's actually on the throne. They've also become the last dynasty standing, if we want to call it that, after finally seeing off the Erik and Sverka dynasties once Valdemar became the king. If you'd like some visual help getting to grips with the Bjerbil family and how they were all related to each other, there is a family tree up on our website. Or actually, there are many family trees. Uh, if you go to a aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, all one word, and then click on family trees in the menu, you'll find them all there. I certainly find them very helpful from time to time, just to see who was actually the son of who, and who married who, and how they all connect. Definitely, especially since many people in both Sweden, Norway and Denmark at this time tended to have the same name. There's so many Eriks, Magnuses, Birgers, Ingebjörgs. They're all cousins or brothers or sisters of each other. So it can be good to have a visual aid to sort out who is who. So the Bielbjörg family is now a proper dynasty that is actually in de facto and de jure power in Sweden. Birger Jarl worked hard to leave the stage set for his family, in particular his sons, to take over when he was gone. Like we said, Valdemar has actually been king for 16 years at this point, which is quite a long time. Uh, but for a large part of that period, he was very young. Remember, he was only about 10, 11 when he becomes king. And more importantly, he's been entirely under the thumb of his dad, even when he became an adult. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Valdemar was pretty much entirely dominated by his father and his dad's rule during those 16 years. 
Valdemar was a puppet king and his dad was the puppet master. However, before we take a closer look at what happens when the puppet master leaves the scene and the puppet is set free, let's back up a little bit and just quickly remind ourselves of the most important things that happened in Valdemar's life and reign up until now. Yeah, so first of all, he's born. That That's quite important. It is, it is. A prerequisite <laughs> to this episode. Like with many people in this time period, we don't have an exact date for Valdemar's birth, but historians have later concluded that he must have been born in 1238 or 1239. His parents were, like we've said, Bjöljöjöl, and Ingeboy, and his mother was the sister of the then king Eric. Because Valdemar's dad's first name was Birjol, the naming tradition at the time meant that Valdemar's last name became Birjolson, i.e. son of Birjol. I'm only mentioning this because I know that if you look up King Valdemar in some encyclopedias or historical textbooks, He's sometimes referred to as King Valdemar Birjorsson, maybe to not confuse him with some of the Danish kings called Valdemar, I don't know, or probably to just highlight the fact that he is Birjorsson's son. Yes, but that's why you might uh, see him under a slightly different name than what we're using in some of the sources. Back to his life, we don't really know anything about his childhood, really. We know he was made king, like we said, after some careful political manoeuvring by his dad, and that he was officially crowned in Linköping Cathedral in 1251. He was presumably educated well and had a decent upbringing because he was part of this powerful family, but we don't know anything about what that might have been. We don't know how Valdemar felt about being put on the throne or being made to be this puppet for his father's rule. There isn't even enough said about it in contemporary sources to give us anything to speculate about. We can only imagine, having seen what a forceful character Birjajar was, that if you were his son, maybe you just went along with what your dad said, regardless of what you felt. One quite important thing that we know happened in Valdemar's life while his dad was still alive is that he gets married. Very nice for him. In 1260, so when he's around 21, 22 years old, he marries the Danish princess Sophia. Marrying a Danish princess is an excellent political move and like we've already mentioned in previous episodes about him, Birjajal was no stranger to using his children as pawns in the political game, having them marry into different royal families to create alliances and strengthen political bonds. Whether Sophia and Valdemar actually liked each other and were keen to get married, again, we don't know. But they were of similar age, and like we said, it made sense politically, their respective families wanted it, so that's what they did. And if the number of children are any indication of happiness in a marriage, Valdemar and Sophia seem to have got on reasonably well, because they eventually will have seven children together. Again, just like with Valdemar himself, we don't know when any of them were born, but we know that their first child, a son called Eric, dies in 1261, just a year after Valdemar and Sophia's wedding, so we can assume that he probably died in infancy, or very young at least. 
A few years later, at some point, they have another son whom they call Eric as well. Why not just recycle the same name because the other guy died? And they have five daughters as well. Ingeborg, the eldest, marries and becomes a countess in Holstein, that area that fluctuates between being German and Denmark over the centuries and decades and years. Daughter Marina also becomes a countess, uh, having married Count Rudolf von Diepholst, a German nobleman. Daughter Rakissa, another recycled name that the family loves very much, does one better than her sisters and becomes the Queen of Poland, thanks to her marriage to King Przemysław II. Unfortunately, we were unable to find out what happened to daughter number four, Katarina, but the youngest of them all, Margareta, became a nun and lived at Hwenega Abbey, close to the Bialbo family's ancestral home. These marriages all take place later on in the story, and whilst naturally bring some sort of diplomatic clout to Sweden at the time, they aren't really groundbreaking marriages like those to local kings or dukes, so aren't especially important in the grand scheme of things. Apart from getting married and having kids, another important thing to mention that happens to Valdemar before 1266 is that in 1255, Jarl got the Pope's blessing to give each of his sons a part of the Swedish kingdom to guarantee their income. This is a practice known in Latin as certas portiones in regno. Uh, they didn't rule over the area they were given as such, but it sort of became theirs to look after, and they got the money from the tax from that area... If you remember, Biljoljal had four sons. Valdemar was the eldest, then there's Magnus, Erik and Bengt. The plan that Biljoljal had laid out was that Valdemar was to be king, as we see that he is, and Magnus was to be the new Jarl, but this title is reformed and so Magnus is to be called Duke. Erik is also made a duke, but his version of the duke title doesn't seem to have been quite equal in standing to Magnus. So let's call him a junior duke. Junior duke. Sounds like a great name. <laughs> junior great title. duke. The youngest brother, Bing, is still relatively young. He's a child at this point. So he doesn't have any role to play in the events of this episode. So just imagine him sitting in the castle playing with Lego, um, maybe building a, a dukedom of his own out of Lego. Going forward in this episode, it's really the oldest three brothers, Valdemar, Magnus and Eric, that are important. It seems like Billyard's plan might have been that they should all get together and help each other as a happy family and not necessarily share the power, but all work in the royal household together with Valdemar as king and Magnus and Eric as his trusty lieutenants, the dukes, all working together to rule Sweden. That will not happen. It, <laughs> it won't work very well and it's going to end badly because these three do not get along. The problem with being the only surviving dynasty and removing your rivals from power means that your dynasty has no common enemy anymore. There's no reason for the Bielbo dynasty to all stick together and fight against the Sverker and Eric dynasties, so they now have time to plot against each other. 
Indeed, and this means not going to end well. Uh, Over the next decades, the late 1200s and into the 1300s, Sweden will see some royal sibling fighting on a scale we've not come close to before. Uh, These brothers will fight. Fight each other, fight over who has the most power, fight over who has the crown. They will just fight, fight, fight. And of course, because they're the monarch and his brothers, their fighting is not just something that concerns them, it concerns the whole kingdom and how it is ruled. Because let me tell you, it is very hard to concentrate on ruling a kingdom when you're busy constantly fighting with your brothers. A fact that Valdemar is about to learn the hard way. Yes, I'm sure he has taste testers and uh, backstabbing protection uh, plans in place because, yeah, it's starting to get very bad. But, however, it does start off relatively peacefully, at least immediately after Birger Jarl leaves the scene. Because after his dad has breathed his final sigh in October of 1266, Valdemar just gets on with ruling Sweden in very much the same fashion as his dad had done. Birgergaard had left the crown in a strong position in domestic affairs, and he'd worked hard on creating and maintaining good relations with German traders, for example, and so Valdemar doesn't really have anything to change to improve the country. He just has to get on with how it was running previously. In fact, he even worked to strengthen some areas, such as strengthening relations with the German traders, and this resulted in confirmed trade privileges with Lübeck in 1267 and a free trade agreement with Riga in 1271, things that we mentioned in our Gotland episode very briefly. Historians have reviewed preserved letters from the time, and they seem to indicate that Valdemar ruled alone, essentially from 1267 to 1273 or thereabouts. When it comes to who rules Sweden, he's the only one that gets mentioned and there's no real indication of there being a Jarl or any other statesman involved much other than the king. So it seems like Valdemar has sidelined his brothers especially Magnus, who their dad had promised would become the Jarl, or during his lifetime, which had changed to this new duke position. Magnus might have imagined he'd have more to say when it came to running the country based on what his father had been doing. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption to make. Because of the way their father had ruled the country, the power was concentrated in one person. Be that the Jarl or the king, it didn't particularly matter which. Birger Jarl didn't rule with a strong cabinet, so to speak, with dukes and chancellors and Jarls all looking after different areas of the country, for example. He ruled relatively singularly. Uh, So when he died, his power just transferred to his son, the king, and Valdemar's brothers didn't have these roles or positions of power to inherit as their brother simply got everything. This is great if you're Valdemar and you get to absorb the powers into being king, but less great if you're Magnus and Erik, who had inherited a weak role as dukes. Yeah, essentially these dukes have no power, they just have the authority to collect these taxes that the Pope has given them, but they're, yeah, they're not the minister for defence or anything like that, they have no governmental role. 
And this doesn't get any better because Valdemar certainly doesn't seem to be interested in addressing this power balance. Or imbalance, really. And quite frankly, he doesn't want to share the new toy that is ruling Sweden with his younger brothers, and especially with Magnus. And this means that Magnus is especially angry, because as the second oldest son, he seems to have imagined that his duke title inherited from his father would mean he had a lot more power. Magnus had nominally got to take over the Jarldom, this new dukedom, and it certainly isn't as powerful, nowhere near a Burya Jarl type of Jarldom or dukedom. Their third brother, Erik, had essentially no official role at all. He's so sidelined in all of this that the Norwegian Magnus saga refers to him as Erik Alsintet, which translates to English as Eric really nothing. <laughs> oh, that's so harsh. Poor Eric. But you can really sort of get a mental picture of uh, Valdemar just not sharing the toy of being king. It's my toy! Yeah, and the nickname reminds me of uh, King John back in England. Uh, oh, actually, almost a similar sort of time. He would have been called John Lackland as a child because uh, his older brothers, Richard I and stuff, had more of the land given to them by their father, Henry II. So very, very similar, actually. Yeah, poor Eric, essentially nothing. The further we get into the 1270s, the more this sibling rivalry intensifies. At one point, it seems to get so intense that Eric leaves the country on a few occasions, but there's no indication as to why he did this. But yes, this situation is really going to get a lot worse, and will pretty much dominate the events of Valdemar's reign. But before we go more into it, we must press pause and head out on a bit of a tangent, because in 1271, something else happens that will have a big impact on Valdemar. Oh yes, he has a sex scandal. Woohoo, <laughs> uh, first proper one, I guess. I think, yeah, this is the first one we've had in the podcast. I, I guess if you don't count the rape scandal back in the early 1150s during Sverker's reign when his son, John the Rapist, raped those two Danish noblewomen, I don't think that counts as a sex scandal. No, I think you're right. Uh, either way, this isn't just any old sex scandal. This is, wait for it, sex with nuns. Ali is ringing the scandal bell on the uh, Rex Factor parallel podcast about this. <laughs> well, I think we have to, in case some of our listeners don't listen to the amazing podcast Rex Factor, uh, maybe you should explain what Ali's scandal bell and sex with nuns is in their podcast. Rex Factor rank all the kings and queens of England in their first series and rank them and judge them on certain categories. And one of them is scandal and... Uh, the co-presenter Ali loves scandal and he also has a little bell that he rings whenever there's particularly juicy scandal and his favourite type of scandal is when a king or a prince has sex with nuns. So it's become a bit of a legend in Rex Factor listening lore. So if nothing else, here's one for you, Ali, a Swedish sex with nuns scandal. To really understand this scandal, we have to go into a bit of background information. As we've mentioned, Valdemar is married to Sophia, a Danish princess, whose father, King Erik Plugpenning, was murdered in 1250. The man behind the murder was none other than the king's brother Abel, who then took over as king, but was then killed himself shortly after in 1252. 
Uh, to make this even more seedy and weird, Abel's widow, Metschild, then married Bielja Jarl. So at one point, Sophia's father-in-law was married to her father's assassin's former wife, who was also her aunt. Yeah, that would make for a few uh, awkward family dinners. I remember saying that when uh, we talked about this in the previous episode. Yeah, but now when we get to 1271, Abel is long dead and Denmark has first been ruled by his other brother, Christoffel I, and is now ruled by Christoffel's son, Erik Klipping. But because of this whole history of different brothers being kings and killing each other and whatnot, it's fair to say that the whole situation in the Danish court is a bit of a mess. For example, Sophia is still due a fair bit of her very substantial dowry and inheritance that the new king, who's her cousin, and the dowager queen Margareta don't want to pay out. After all, Sophia is the daughter of the former king who their faction of the family killed to get on the throne, so she's not someone they would want to spend money on. But because Sophia is now queen of Sweden, the Swedish court is quite keen on getting that money she's owed, and they put pressure on Denmark. Yeah, it's like one of these uh, daytime TV programs, The Air Hunters, I think it's called in the UK, where they track down who is owed what. And the Dowager Queen Margareta seems to have been a quite a forceful and also not very nice character. She thinks it's bad enough that she has to deal with Sophia and the Swedes wanting money, but Sophia's sister, Ingeborg, is married to the King of Norway, and she's owed money too. So Margaret is very much keeping all the money for herself. But watching the numbers tick up on her debt calculator, and knowing that Sophia has two more unmarried sisters, she decides that it's too much of a risk having these two single women roaming around Denmark where they might meet a future husband. So she grabs them and forces them to enter a monastery. There, nice and easy, into a monastery with you, and that way I don't have to hear you pestering me about money in the future or risk that you gain power by marrying into other royal families like your sisters did. There. Yep, problem solved, really, right? Um, they're in a monastery, they can't get married, and that's it. Sounds very simple. Margareta has ticked that box. She One has. less problem. She has indeed. Um, but apparently not, because these two sisters, Jutta and Agnes, they don't want to live in a monastery, because for them it's pretty boring, especially compared to being a princess of a Scandinavian monarchy. And especially the case for Jutta, who is not keen on being a nun at all. So in 1271, they escape and uh, they take refuge with their sister, Queen Sophia, in Sweden. I really want to know about how they escaped. Did they just open the door and walk out, or did they have to sort of tunnel out or build a, a paper plane and fly off the, off the battlements of this monastery, which has battlements for some reason? I mean, I don't know. I'm afraid it didn't come up in any of the sources I read for this episode. Chris is imagining some sort of... Uh, the Great Escape-like uh, scenario for these two sisters. Escape from Colditz. <laughs> 
And when these two sisters arrive in Sweden, that's when Valdemar falls madly in love with, or at least lusts after, uh, his sister-in-law, Jutta, who is still technically still a nun at this point, even though she ran away from the monastery. You can't run away from the church. You might leave the building, but you can't leave the regime. And uh, pretty soon afterwards, they get together, and Jutta becomes Valdemar's mistress. It's even rumoured that they have a child together, even though later historians have been unable to confirm this, and it's certainly not an acknowledged child in the history books or even by Valdemar himself. But what we have here is an affair between a king and a runaway nun who is also his wife's sister. Now, that is what I call a scandal. Yeah, I think that's top-tier level scandal. Um, and because remember, not only is Jutta Valdemar's sister-in-law and a nun on the run, she's also on the run from the Danish royal family that owes money to the Swedish royal family, leaving Valdemar in a big argument with Margareta. Wow, I mean, if you thought TV soap operas like EastEnders in the UK had scandalous plot lines, that is nothing compared to this. This is uh, family feuds, money being owed, nuns, sister-in-law. I, this, this story really has everything. I think it's a great scandal. It's a great scandal, and it's about to get worse, um, <laughs> because Valdemar and Jutta's affair doesn't stay secret for very long, and when it comes out, it lands Valdemar in quite a bit of trouble with the church, and presumably his wife, too. Because, according to the law of the Catholic Church at the time, it was illegal to have sexual relations with close members of your family, including your family-in-law. That And we can also imagine that they didn't take too kindly to the fact that he was also having sex with someone who was technically still a nun. Yeah, that too. And that means that Valdemar has not just got two angry brothers to deal with, he's also fallen out of grace with his wife and with the church. And we all know how important the support of the church was to medieval royals, especially to kings. Perhaps in an effort to try and get back in the church's good books, Valdemar is believed to have gone on a pilgrimage to Rome in either 1273 or 1274. Now, I say is believed to because details are scarce on what actually happens, but most historians agree that Valdemar was out of the country and most likely in Rome, atoning for his sex with nuns sins around this time. And whilst in Rome, Valdemar had a few things to talk to the Pope about. First up is the matter of Uppsala. Way back near the start of Valdemar's reign, in fact when his father Birger was still calling the shots, it had been decided that the Archbishopric of Uppsala needed to be moved somewhere. They agreed on the move, but not where it should move to. It took until around 1270 when a new cathedral was decided to be built in a village called Oros. This would be the new head of the Archbishopric of Uppsala, but on the condition that this village changes its name to Uppsala. Yeah, that's funny. You get to have a cathedral, but you need to change your name. Indeed, and in 1273 this change officially happens. Oros becomes Uppsala, home to the building blocks of this new cathedral, and the old town of Uppsala becomes just that. It changes its name to Old Uppsala. 
Perhaps Valdemar told the Pope he had better update his maps or something like this and uh, update the address in his address book. Although not that dramatically, actually, because this new Uppsala Cathedral is only four and a half kilometers or 2.8 miles from the church in old Uppsala, which used to be the home of the Archbishop. That's pretty close and very handy with them keeping the same name. I guess they didn't get round to doing that in England when Americans called New York, New York. Then York didn't change to Old York. No, exactly. It's just regular York remained York. It didn't become Old York, um, which would be a bit condescending, I guess, if they had to change it to Old York. Yeah, I do think they, it should be original. Yeah. Original York and original Uppsala. York, TM. <laughs> yeah. But yes, in this brand new Uppsala, they really hit the ground running in 1273. This was when the relics of Eric the Holy, the great treasures of the old church, were moved to the site of this new cathedral that's being built. And it was this move that signified the formal moving of the archbishopric. The person in charge of this process was called Folke Johansson Engel, and perhaps as a reward or maybe even a condition of him being in charge of this project, he was named the new Archbishop of Uppsala, a position which had actually been vacant for a few years thanks to an argument with the Archbishop of Lund down in Denmark, who, remember, is still technically the boss of the Archbishop of Uppsala and has the right to appoint whoever he wants to that job. And Mr. Engel doesn't like the idea of working with the Danes that much, so he travels to Rome personally in 1274 to be ordained by the Pope directly. And perhaps he was even there with Valdemar. No sources suggest this, but they do say that it could have been in the same year. So either way, he is ordained Archbishop of Uppsala in Rome and returns to Sweden to keep managing the project that is building this new huge cathedral in New Uppsala or just Uppsala. Unfortunately, he wouldn't see it finished, as these things take a long time. A bit of a spoiler, but the project will continually be delayed thanks to things like cold Swedish winters, at some point the Black Death, and like any big building project, money problems also delayed it. In fact, it won't be until the end of the 1300s that the initial plans were completed. But Valdemar and Archbishop Engel wouldn't know this when they told the Pope about the grand plans. No, I wonder if they actually gave a uh, completion <laughs> expected by date or not. Probably not. And uh, whilst they were there talking to the Pope, drama was happening back in Sweden taking all good opportunities. With Valdemar being away and his standing being weakened by all of his scandals, his brothers Magnus and Eric seize their chance to move in and grab more power. Magnus even goes as far as resigning his obedience to the king and stating publicly that he has no faith in Valdemar as ruler. All of this whilst Valdemar is away, so this is very much a stab in the back. At the very least, Magnus wants the kind of jarldom that his father, the Jarl, had, which, as we know, meant very extensive power, even if you're not the king. And when Valdemar is out of the country, Magnus manages to assert more or less that kind of power. There isn't a full-blown military coup or burning of villages loyal to the king and things like that, but there is a sharp increase of power for Magnus and the number of people willing to back him in this tug of war with his brother. 
The two sides start gathering manpower and eye each other up across the country, knowing that eventually something is going to have to give. Valdemar, when he returns home, cannot afford a public display of disobedience from his brother like this. Things only get worse, and at the start of 1275, Valdemar writes to the Pope to ask for help. After all, he had probably just been to visit him. Uh, the Pope allows for the Bishop of Linköping to intervene, but that seemed to do nothing of consequence, really. Instead, the situation deteriorates, and on the 14th or the 15th of July, uh, sources vary on the exact date, the rivalry between the brothers finally comes to real blows at the Battle of Hiwuva. Yeah, so you've seen in just a couple of years, it's gone from a bit of a jealous brother to publicly announcing that he has no faith in the king and then an actual battle between these two brothers. So it's escalated pretty quickly. Ulf Sundberg describes the battle in his book Medieval Swedish Wars. Before the battle, Magnus and Eric had actually been to Denmark to recruit support, perhaps knowing that the Danish royals aren't too fond of Valdemar either, what with that whole argument about Queen Sophia's money and then Valdemar's affair with Jutta. Magnus and Eric do get some support from Denmark in the form of a hundred men. And that might not seem like a lot of men, but Magnus promises that he'll pay 6,000 silver marks for this support. So maybe these were highly professional knights or something like that, but they're, they're worth a lot of money. And it might not seem important right now, this promise to pay back the money, but this will come back to haunt Magnus later on in the story. Magnus and Erik also gather 700 German and other Danish fighters, in addition to the 100 men they were already given, so they've got a modest force gathered. Uh, moreover, Magnus is actually a proper knight trained in battle, whereas Valdemar, on the other hand, is described as weak and self-indulgent, uh, two qualities that perhaps make him less than ideal as a leader in combat. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. And this is probably true because Valdemar does actually make an initial mistake when the battle starts that might be what cost him the whole thing. He brings most of his regular soldiers to the battlefield and encamps them there. But he and his best men stay behind at a place called Ramunda Buddha. Perhaps he wanted to protect them and not put all of his eggs in one basket. We don't really know his reasoning behind this tactic. But what does happen is that Magnus finds out what has been done and attacks with full force at Hoover where Valdemar's remaining men are mainly only untrained farmers with a few pitchforks and the odd sword. Without a leader and facing superior fighters in Magnus and Eric's army, they are entirely wiped out, and the few that manage to survive just run away, probably quite wisely. When Valdemar receives news of what has happened, he's advised to retreat and regroup to face his brothers in a proper battle later on when things can be more even and they've recovered. But for whatever reason, he doesn't do this. Instead, he simply flees and legs it all the way up to Norway. Um, perhaps, yeah, he saw the writing on the wall, perhaps, or thought he'd never be able to raise another army again, so he just runs away. 
his remaining men, these uh, other more professional knights and soldiers, who we can only assume were fairly confused at what to do at this point, head north into the county of Nerka, where they meet Magnus and Eric's army and simply walk up to them and surrender and join them instead. Well, that's almost a bit of an anticlimax, really, at least for Valdemar, uh, not for his massacred peasant army. Tension has been brewing for so many years, and then there's finally a battle, and Valdemar just runs away. Valdemar returns from Norway later in the same year, though, that is in 1275, and comes to the county of Värmland. Here he is arrested, so in hindsight maybe he should have stayed in Norway, he is arrested by Magnus and forced to resign the throne. On the 22nd of July, the Swedish noblemen accept Magnus as the new ruler and he is elected king at Miurastenar. However, for reasons we'll get into in the next episode, he's not actually crowned king yet. Yeah, there's no big ceremony yet. Uh, The fallout is still settling on the dramatic news that he's arrested and deposed his brother, the king. Which, like, sometimes when we talk about these things, when we're just reading it from the script or reading it in the book, you just think, okay, this happened, blah, 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 it's 800-odd years ago. But then when you think about it, it's a pretty big deal. The brother has arrested the king and taken his throne from him. Like, that's that's a pretty... You can imagine the peasants down in uh, Ostergötland thinking, what? What? What's happened? Wait, wait, what? what? Tell me that again. We got a new king. How did this happen? What What happened? Yeah, for sure. Uh, but at least initially, a bit of a compromise is reached that perhaps makes this a tiny bit less dramatic. Uh, the idea is that the brothers should share the kingdom, at least in practice. Magnus is the real king, but Valdemar gets to stay in Sweden, though, and is even given Götaland, the southwestern bit of the country, to rule over as a local ruler, whilst Magnus rules the rest of the country as king. This is a bit like if we go a couple of hundred years back, when there were elected sort of local kings and more like local chieftains ruling different parts of Sweden and then maybe one more main king. Magnus is emboldened by the victory at Hiuva and now goes further than just wanting to be a powerful jarl or duke like his dad. He now wants to be a king. He's sort of had a taste of being the big guy, and he's not going to let that go. And that is what we will cover in the next episode, because whilst Valdemar is not dead, his time as king of Sweden is over, and he's now left powerless. It will then be time to see what his brother Magnus gets up to when he takes the crown for real, but much more on that next time. We'll leave Sweden here in 1275 after a dramatic nine-year period of Valdemar ruling without his father's iron fist grabbing onto his shoulder and dictating his moves. When you read about Valdemar's solo reign, it's pretty much more or less entirely dominated by his sex scandal and his rivalry with his brothers, both of which severely weaken his position as king to the extent that eventually it's taken from him. I can't help feeling at this point, Birgigal must have been up in heaven, angrily shaking his fists. He'd set it up so nicely for his sons, and in the space of nine years, they've messed it all up. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not easy being a parent, I suppose. Your kids rarely do what you want them to. But just before we finish today's episode, I feel like there are two tiny loose ends that we should tie up. Uh, first of all, Magnus isn't the only one who is victorious at the Battle of Hilva, so is their third brother, Erik. But what happened to him? And second of all, what happened to Jutta, the runaway nun? Well, I'll answer the first question. Erik, that younger brother who was allied with Magnus, doesn't get to enjoy the sweet fruit of victory for very long. After Magnus takes over the crown that summer, Erik takes over Magnus's old role as the primary duke in the country, the Jarl-type figure. However, he dies essentially very soon afterwards, on the 12th of December of that same year, 1275. Oh, that's a shame. Very much a shame. And when Bilyar's grave in Varnhem Abbey was opened in 2002, a study led by scientists from the University of Lund concluded that the grave contained three people, most likely Bilyar himself, his second wife Medchild, and this son, Eric. When studying the remains of what has been decided to be Eric, scientists found out that he was 175 centimetres tall, roundabout, but rather weak. His ligaments and muscle structures were not fully developed, and his sternum and joints showed signs of lesions. So, whilst we don't know what caused his death, he doesn't seem to have been a very well and strong person, and perhaps had some long-term health issues too. And uh, also, you know what happened to the Jutta, the nun, don't you? So how about you tell us? I do. Uh, Although, as is the case for so many women at this point in history, not too much is written down about her. What we do know is that after her affair with Valdemar, which, again, we don't know to what extent that was consensual, if they were in love or... Indeed, we don't know anything about the actual emotional side of it. But after that, the Danish church wanted to have the Swedish church excommunicate both her and her sister Agnes. And that would have most likely been seen as one of the worst things that could happen to a person, considering what a strict religious time the High Middle Ages was in Europe. For whatever reason, though, this doesn't happen, and instead Jutta actually goes back to Denmark and puts up a fight with the royal family and especially with her aunt, the Dowager Queen Margareta. Not just that, she is actually eventually successful, and in 1284 she finally receives at least part of the money that she's due. Good for her. Good uh, fighting the family. Yeah, good for her to stand up and put up a fight. Unfortunately, she then dies later in the same year. Sounds very suspicious. Maybe she was on the way to the bank and had an accident with all of her money or something. <laughs> we, we don't know. But yes, both Eric and Jutta died just as they achieved what they'd spent a lot of their life fighting for. Uh, it's a pretty sad note to end today's episode on, actually. Uh, we'll see if the general mood gets a bit better in the next episode, uh, when we'll see what happens in Sweden now that Magnus is at the helm of the kingdom. But until then, don't forget to check out our website for some maps and family trees and all the lovely episode pictures, and follow us on social media if you'd like to get in touch with us there. 
Someone who has got in touch is Magnus Anderson, that same fellow from before, who uh, not only suggested a bunch of great new Swedish phrases, but also told us a bit of extra information about the location of the Battle of Lena back in 1208. Magnus told us some of the local legends from his family's area, which claim the Battle of Lena took place there. This is near the modern-day village of Kungslena, between the towns of Folsherping and Hövda in central Sweden. Magnus's late father told him that back in the 1950s, a local farmer found remains from the battle when he was digging ditches in his field. Magnus had two more interesting pieces of local history trivia from that era to share. First, that a hill close to his grandparents' home is called Kungshögen, or the King's Hill in English, named because, according to legend, that's the hill where King Eric was standing on during the battle. And second, most of the rock in the area is white limestone, but around Kungslena it's red, and that's according to legend because of all the Danish blood that was spilled there in the battle. So that's quite dramatic and Ooh, adds yeah. a little bit of uh, colour to the mystery of where the Battle of Lena was. Literally. Thank you so much, Magnus, for sharing those uh, bits of local historical legend. And thanks to everyone else who gets in touch. It's Always great to hear from you listeners. Someone else who did get in touch uh, to point out a glaring error that we made in the Finland episode uh, is my good friend Mary. And luckily it wasn't really about history, but it was about modern day Finland. This is why you should never be sure of anything. Uh, I was so sure that Obo, or Turko, as it's called in Finnish and in English, was the second largest city that I didn't even bother to look it up. And so I've learned that I should always look things up because Obo is not the second biggest city. The second biggest city in Finland is Tampere or Tamofos in uh, Swedish. Which is where Mary comes from. So she was particularly keen to make sure that we uh, said that it's current day Finland's second biggest city. Credit where credit is due, Tampere is the second biggest city in Finland, and I am terribly sorry about the mistake. Yes, um, and so if you would like to get in touch to tell us about mistakes, ideas, or even leave a review, please do that. Keep leaving reviews on whatever platform you listen to us on. It helps us get noticed, and it makes us very happy. Yes, and uh, if you've left a review and we haven't read it out yet and you would like us to read it out, we might have missed one or two as they come through, do let us know and we'll happily read it out for you. And until next time, I think it's just time for us to say goodbye. Yep, bye for now. Hey, door. He brings all his men to Hoover and in to Hoover. <laughs> uh, come on, men, let's go Hoover up. <laughs> he brings all his men to Hoover and in <laughs> one man then went to Hoover. <laughs> Two men went to Hoover. Eight hundred men went, went to, to Hoover. Hoover. Um, Hoover. Hoover. Yeah.